Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. We all have our good days and our bad days. Our mood naturally trends up and down in response to the events of our constantly changing worlds. As wise people have said, change is the only constant in life. But some people change more frequently and are hit harder by change than others. On today's episode, we're continuing our series on Who Am I? by looking at a particularly intense but actually quite common version of this, borderline personality disorder. I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. So how are you today? I'm excellent. And I'm trying to make a joke about being on the border of something or at the <laughs> frontier. Uh, you're, you're trying I've to make a loved, dad joke. Well, I, I, it, I, I, we live on the edge of a border. Mm. As you know, we're, we're on the edge of a suburb, but on mm-hmm. our backyard, past our backyard is open space, open country. And I think about how civilization has often been really served by this tension between the city and the forest. You see that a lot in literature. Mm-hmm. And you see these borderlands inside us, these frontiers where reason runs into passion. And there's a lot of great stuff that happens at those intersections, including, I think, about the origins of life, apparently in tidal pools where the sea met the land or down deep where these volcanic vents erupted and met the ocean themselves. So I like borderlands. Well, okay. Well, we're going to do a pretty significant (laughs) investigation of one particular kind of border today in this episode. And before we actually get into the meat of the material today, I want to start by letting our listeners know about a new offering that you have, which is the online program called Neurodharma. So for many of us, the person that we really want to be and already are deep down, yeah, yeah is often kind of covered over with fear and regret and distraction and stress of various kinds. So in this program, you're going to be guiding people through developing seven key qualities for feeling increasingly centered in their fundamental goodness, enoughness, and wakefulness, as you list out. And as a quick note, of course, registration for the program is open. I'll drop a link into the description of this episode. If you would like to follow that and if you're interested in learning more, we try not to be too promotional on the podcast. We really try to avoid it. We're not currently running ads or anything like that, but it is, I think, on its own merit, a really interesting offering. And I know that it's just been very uh, compelling material for you personally recently. If you are theoretically interested in purchasing a copy of the program, you can enter the code BEINGWELL in all caps at checkout to receive an extra 10% off of the purchase price. That's just for our podcast listeners. Yay, the podcast. Yay, the podcast. So all that said, we are now going to get into our actual material today for this episode on borderline personality disorder. And I think that it makes sense to start by saying, what is that? And when we call somebody borderline, Mm -hmm. what do we really mean? Right. So first I want to clarify the meaning of the term personality disorder. Mm -hmm. And that technical term is really quite specific. And it essentially means having a pervasive collection of personal qualities that appear in different times and different places and with different relationships and situations that are also enormously problematic Mm. in terms of functioning and experiencing. So we're talking here about a pretty extreme situation. 
much as one can learn from the study of extreme situations or characteristics and then apply that to kind of more normal rangey things, I'm going to tend to veer away from the language of disorder, which is also pathologizing right off the top, and, 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 and speak more about sort of borderline qualities or borderline personality tendencies, point one. Point two, I want to mention that the origin of the terminology for this is rooted in the early history of psychoanalysis and other approaches right around the turn of the century. And the notion was that there are people who are not psychotic, they weren't clearly schizophrenic, and yet they are kind of on the borderline of that. Going back to my joke at the beginning about borderlands, like kind of borderline-ish psychotic, people who were, and we'll get into more of the detail, but who were very easily disturbed by seemingly little things in life, open to fairly odd beliefs and ideas, especially about their relationships, what was really happening in them, and really unstable and difficult to work with. So that was the terminology initially, borderline. I know you, Forrest, have done a deep recent dive Mm -hmm. into current research about it, as well as the current diagnostic criteria, so-called, from the American Psychiatric Association as to what constitutes a borderline personality disorder or tendency. And maybe we could shift into that. What have you found? Yeah. To dive there. So if you live in this territory, either as a psychologist or as somebody who happens to have a fascination with this sort of thing, which is more my territory of it, There's something called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or otherwise the DSM. We call it the Bible. The Bible, yes. (laughs) The Bible for a psychologist. No disrespect to the real Bible. Of course, of course. And it just gives a sort of very clear assessment of what the diagnostic criteria are for these different disorders. And I think that it's good to frame things in terms of that for a moment before we move on more to the consideration of this podcast, which is these issues at more the kind of 10 or 30% level, the kind of everyday version of what might otherwise be called kind of clinical BPD. And they fall into four different categories, which have sort of two or three points inside each one. The first one is excessive, unstable, and poorly regulated emotional responses, which is one characteristic of borderline. This includes three points, affective instability, including intense episodic emotional anguish, irritability, and anxiety or panic attacks. The second is anger that is inappropriate, intense, and difficult to control. And the third is chronic feelings of emptiness. So if I could just quickly interrupt, um, and as, as you know, for us, the way this works diagnostically, which has pluses and minuses, it's about a box score. So mm-hmm. technically, there are nine attributes and it clustered in four groups. And the kind of cutoff threshold for an official diagnosis is five out of nine. Mm-hmm. More generally, I also want to add that as you listen to this, you might think about people you know. Mm. Particularly people that you have a history of a stormy relationship with Mm. or things seemed to be going fine. And then suddenly, whoa, that other person took a sharp right hand turn that seemed to come out of the blue. So, and you know, you might think about yourself too, particularly at your worst. Mm. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a theme we'll get to, I'm sure more and more, where people can be functioning at a high level, particularly if they're environments and relationships and activities shore them together, shore them up together. But when the bottom falls out, then where do you go? And that 
is a consideration here. When the floor evaporates beneath your feet, at that point, do you tend to, or do people you know tend to drop into this really kind of deep well of difficulty? Mm -hmm. And that is all very much in line with the kind of theory of the case of these episodes, which is what is that 10% borderline or 10% narcissism or 10% sociopathy? to touch on some of the ones we've covered in the past, actually look like practically, including, frankly, turning the lens upon yourself and upon all of ourselves and kind of doing an evaluation of that. And we'll definitely be getting into that later in the episode. So the second domain of that, to return to the diagnostic criteria, it's impulsive behaviors that are harmful to you or to others. This includes two traits. The first one, self-damaging acts, such as excessive spending or substance abuse, things like that. And then the second one of these is recurrent suicidal behavior, gestures, threats, or self-injurious behavior. The third domain is inaccurate perceptions of yourself or others and high levels of suspiciousness, which is definitely something we'll be touching on. This includes a markedly and persistently unstable self-image or sense of yourself. And then second trait, suspiciousness of others' thoughts about you including paranoid ideation, which is something that we also might talk about in a little bit. Technical point, the paranoid ideation is a soft way of saying suspiciousness. It doesn't mean that you think that aliens are living inside your television and they're talking to you. That would be psychotic. But paranoid ideation is one where you just, for example, feel that no matter what people do, you just still can't trust them. Mm Mm-hmm. So that final category is tumultuous and very unstable relationships. This has, again, two traits inside of it. The first possibility, you may engage in frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. And then second, your relationships may be very intense and unstable. So those are kind of the criteria as a whole. Remember, diagnostically, somebody needs to check five of those boxes to formally have what might be called BPD. But again, the whole conceit of this podcast episode is that, hey, you may not have 100% BPD. Somebody that you know may not have 100% BPD. But what if it's 10%? What if it's 30%? What if it's one or two of those criteria? What does that look like practically? And what can we do to interact with it more positively? So to kind of sum all that up, BPD is what's known as a dramatic disorder. It's in the same family as antisocial and narcissism. And it's really characterized by instability and impulsivity to make it kind of as simple as possible. And it's sort of unique in among what are referred to as disorders. Again, disorder has a very diagnostic and negative tone to it. So I kind of want to avoid that word, but it's unique in how extreme this instability is. You can go from angry to sad to happy in under an hour. And the world around people who would describe themselves in this way or who would be described in this way is kind of constantly changing. A lot of impulsivity. Foundations are sand underneath their feet. They never feel like they can really ground themselves in a sense of now. There may be a history of problematic or unstable relationships. And otherwise, things just feel kind of inconsistent. So that's sort of the softer terming of what we might refer to as BPD. So do you have any commentary on any of that? Well, my first comment is 
Wow, Forrest, you would get an A in this class. That's for darn sure. <laughs> well, <laughs> you can teach you, it. I appreciate <laughs> you that. Can teach it. Second, I want to come at the very systematic way mm-hmm. that you've summarized what systematically we know yeah. about this territory. And now I want to kind of come at it a little more intuitively and also developmentally. What are the origins? So I think here a lot through the lens of attachment theory, that when, if you think about the three kind of classic subtypes of attachment, also, or actually I'll say all four, first, secure, you're securely attached, let's say as an 18-month-old toddler or preschooler. Then there's insecurely attached, distancing, sometimes called avoidant insecure attachment. Then there's anxious, insecure attachment, sort of clinging and complaining together. And also quite uncommon, but still real, disorganized, where you're just kind of blown up by a really bad situation. Okay. Borderline personality disorder is like anxious, insecure attachment on steroids, Mm -hmm. turned up to a thousand. Mm -hmm. But it has many of those same qualities and often has those origins in being insecurely attached to caregivers and having a lot of experiences in early childhood that are disruptive. Mm. Or you're getting mixed messages from parents. You're beautiful, come here. You're ugly, go away. You're Mm. beautiful, come here. You're bad, go away. And that can just really create a kind of whipsaw situation. I remember this poignant metaphor from one of my Robert Heinlein science fiction novels. A little bit of a trigger warning here if you love dogs. He said, you know, If you take a puppy and you raise him really well and you love him all the time, he'll turn into a certain kind of a dog. On the other hand, if you take that same puppy and mistreat him every day, he'll turn into a a dunder kind of dog. But if you take that same puppy and treat him well on even numbered days and treat him horribly on Mm. odd numbered days, you'll, you'll drive him crazy. You'll really create a mess of a puppy. And there's something about that that often is involved in insecure anxious attachment, mixed messages, prizing and devaluing, comforting and and punishing, just all mixed up together. In addition to that, we have the heritability aspects, the genetically grounded causal uh, factors that are surprisingly high. I was Mm. really surprised when you, Forrest, uh, turned up some recent meta-analyses, very official summaries of summaries of data on on this territory and identified that about 40% of the variance in the population of borderlining-ness or not is accounted for by heritable factors. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that creates often, I think, classically was called a stress diathesis technical terminology in which there's a genetic slash heritable vulnerability, let's say, that a child has, which then makes a diathesis with an environment Mm. that's not optimal. And I would add as well that in the etiology here and in the history, you often see that there are physiological issues in the first you know, year or two or three of the child, including some even in utero. In other words, kids coming out born prematurely or with significant health issues like very colicky, impossible to soothe, or significant sleep disturbances in the first year of life. That as a detail is also very wearing on caregivers. So maybe caregivers 
have a vulnerability to being not the greatest parents in the world, but if their child was really easy, they could deliver. But now let's say you've got a child hypothetically hits the trifecta, unfortunately, of being both genetically vulnerable to borderline tendencies and also major physiological Mm -hmm. issues Mm -hmm. in early childhood and also caregivers who just lose it. So there's a stack of factors that contributes to this. Potentially, yeah. yeah. And including what are called ACEs, which stands for ACES, Adverse Childhood Experiences. So if you throw that all together, let's say, you know, genetic vulnerability plus physiology plus lousy environment, oof, that's a setup for developing a borderline personality. Yeah, that makes total sense. It's a really good assessment. Obviously, it's a little bit technical. I think that in general, this episode is going to tend a little technical. So that's just kind of a a disclaimer on all of this that but we're doing But it is kind of cool. To tell, I, I think, think it's really it's like interesting. when doctors really yeah. explain, well, this is why we cut here Absolutely. and not there. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of bringing people in. And it's also a way to think about it. And I should add as well, these days, if you want to insult someone, call them adolescent mm. or call them borderline. Mm. That's an even worse thing. And there's a lot of lingo around that, like my ex was a borderline. And well, maybe or maybe not. And the reasons why people develop these tendencies, mm-hmm. it's not your fault. No one chose an incarnation yeah. in this life or no one at age five said, yo, I want to grow up and be borderline. Mm-hmm. No, things happen. And the people who actually most suffer borderline tendencies are people who have them. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point. And it's one that I want to touch on in just a little bit as well. To kind of summarize everything that you're saying here as neatly as I can, one of the real features of BPD, in addition to that kind of inconsistency we mentioned before, is a fear of abandonment. Fundamentally, those disassociative experiences, kind of for lack of a better way of putting it, in childhood or based on genetic vulnerability or whatever it might be, created this sense inside of the individual, whereas there's just this chronic fear of either real or perceived abandonment. There can be a hypersensitivity to rejection or criticism, and there can be a certain level of overreaction to fairly minor slights because in that moment, all of that pre-existing material can get triggered by that unpleasant event. Now, I think that many of the people listening to this podcast might look at themselves and go, well, I don't particularly love it when my friends are late to meet me or when my my partner leaves me for somebody else or you know something fairly intense like that. How does that experience, that normal range experience, differ from the experience of somebody with BPD? I think that a good uh, way of thinking about that is in terms of attachment theory. In mm-hmm. other words, a child who's securely attached or an adult who is securely attached isn't always happy with their partner or their parent and may well have strong emotional reactions of hurt or anger, but they're resolved rapidly and they occur inside an underlying network, which I think is a way to think of it, of a kind of mesh that's Mm -hmm. stable and reliable and solid and you don't fall through the floor. There's a net there. But someone who's on that borderline spectrum uh, has first a deep feeling of instability inside that I think is at bottom neurological and physiological. So just imagine your way into what's it like to be them or what's it like to be you if this fits you while you listen here. 
it's shaky inside. Now, whether that shakiness is hardwired into the DNA to start with or to what extent it was acquired over time, that said, there's a fundamental sense of instability. And that sense of instability, which goes fairly quickly, it's on the border of annihilation, Mm. is right there. It's soothed, let's say, by an immediacy of connection, just like really, really high-octane delivering of the parenting or caregiving goods in early childhood can settle a child who's freaking out in the moment. But anything short of that, 100 out of 100, environmental support, perfect attunement, really, really being responsive and sensitive and reassuring. You know, if it's anything less than 100 out of 100 or maybe 98 out of 100, anything less than that, the bottom falls out. And it can feel really desperate. So the fears of abandonment are nested inside larger kind of understandable fears of annihilation, Mm. of no longer going on being. So then that leads to a, a very strong tendency to be constantly pulling for reassurance, which can make other people in the life of this person feel like they're dealing with an emotional vampire, mm, to put it really mm-hmm. bluntly. Or another metaphor that sometimes is used is like you're with a black hole. Like you keep giving and giving and giving, but nothing seems to stick, which can then create issues in relationships and lead others to stop giving what this person really does need, which is a lot of reassuring social supplies. That's why to kind of flag something, which I figure we're going to get to more later. If you're with someone who's in this territory, including your child, your teenager, and or a relationship, or this is you yourself, it's so important to hyper-focus on that which is internally stabilizing, including undeniable, primal, comforting ways like inhaling, drinking a little water, soothing your body, what's internally stabilizing. And also, when you're having experiences that are useful, including interpersonal experiences, really, really, really slow down to take in the good. Mm. You know, really, really stay with the experience for a breath or two or longer. Feel it in your body. Work the positive neuroplasticity technology, essentially, to gradually hardwire that resource into yourself. Otherwise, you're left with an endlessly hungry heart. That's never been fed, that tastes the food, but doesn't digest it. I think that's great. And it's a really good summary of what we're going to touch on later around working with these tendencies that Mm. are kind of touching BPD if they're not the full version of it. So speaking of that, thus far, we've really talked about 100% BPD, somebody who has just the full menu of the characteristics. As a quick note, BPD is actually quite common as these tendencies inside the mind go. And it's very likely, frankly, that uh, many people listening to this podcast at least know someone who has the full slate of symptoms associated with it. But what are the traits of somebody who has it at, say, the 10% level? What's that normal or more everyday version of BPD? Yeah, I want to... Contrast the 10% level, mm-hmm. if you will, with the 90% or 100% in part to inform the 10 to 30% range. So if you're in relationship with someone and there is a lot of kind of manipulative, self-destructive gestures on their part to suck you in, to 
protect them or come through for them, or you feel like you're being held hostage in the relationship by their fate. Uh, If you leave me, I'll kill myself is the extreme version of that. Or if you're with someone who never seems to get enough, you know, they never seem to settle. Uh, Someone pointed out to me that uh, a lovely saying in Taoism is one who knows when enough is enough always has enough, Mm. right? They never seem to know enough. That's another, that's like the characteristic of 90 or 100. Another is what's called splitting. This is a term from early psychoanalysis that's really useful. Uh, it's this tendency to polarize, to, for example, idealize the other initially. That's often the history of a relationship with someone who has a full borderline disorder. Initially, they come in and they're really idealizing. Maybe they're charming. They're, there's a flattery there. You're so amazing. And then that kind of segues into, I need you so much. And then that segues into, you're the worst person in the world because you didn't give me what I needed. The last thing I'll say about the 90 to 100 range, as it were, of the full borderline personality is that sometimes you'll encounter people who have the full borderline personality, but you don't see it because everything's fine as long as everything's fine. And they roll along. There's a term high-functioning borderline. So holding a job, raising a family, shored up by, let's say, a very reliable partner, low stress environment, everything's going great. And then for some reason, something changes. Maybe their partner leaves them. Maybe uh, something changes in their life circumstance and the supply train of what are called narcissistic supplies, endless reassurance, endless praising falls apart. They no longer have that gig on the evening news, let's say. And then the bottom falls out. And there's a sense that I think of psychologically some using the metaphor of like a crab with an exoskeleton there's a solid shell on the outside but if you crack through that high functioning solid shell you fall a long way before you come to any underlying psychological structure so that's a case where there always really was that borderline personality there it was covered over it was as we say well compensated technical Mm. term but when that compensation support falls away you're all the way down to the bottom that's the full version contrasted with which would be what i would think of a lot as insecure attachment of the anxious sort in adulthood so this would look like a tendency to really need reassurance kind of continually and maybe you could, <laughs> if you get, you know, one big hit a day, you're okay, but you need your daily dose of reassurance. Do you still love me? Do you still love me? There could be in the background a nagging sense of uneasiness in relationships, a hungry heart, even if it's masked, depending on your gender socialization or your culture. Technically, as you know, Forrest, Borderline personality disorder is probably three to four times as common in women as in men. There are the male or masculine versions of this. I've certainly seen that. But in the milder versions, I suspect that the distribution is closer to Mm 50-50. And so whether the presentation uh, is male or female, to the extent that means something, or this culture or that culture, behind it all at this 10 to 30 percent level we're talking about here is this nagging feeling of not enoughness, never enough. And often this subtle dynamic, I call it clinging 
complaint or reproach as an ongoing theme in relationship. Reproach is a really useful word. It's a kind of melancholy, you know, complaint. Oh, which it doesn't come with fire and brimstone, but there's something strong in it coming to another person. So I'd say that. And then just uh, the last thing I'd say is that if people feel maybe an underlying instability, uh, a term that's used as labile, your emotions are just sort of volatile or you swing rapidly, let's say from joy to anger, that's also something to look at. Uh, There's a certain amount of overlap here to finish between this personality style and underlying dysregulation of emotion or impulses. We all know that the food we eat today affects how we feel tomorrow. But what if I told you that it could affect how you felt in 20 years? We're learning so much these days about our bodies, and one of the challenges for people right now is that there's an enormous amount of information out there, but it can be difficult to separate fact from fiction. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Naomi's Apple Review says Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume, even if you don't understand the science, with loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting, cutting-edge science. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Naomi and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. As somebody who has a long history of painful acne and related skin issues, I know how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's where our sponsor, OneSkin, comes in. Most skincare available on the market is designed to provide a temporary reduction in symptoms without addressing many of the underlying causes. OneSkin's OS01 line of products targets cellular senescence. This is a key hallmark of aging, directly with their proprietary OS01 peptide. The OS01 peptide can reduce the number of senescent cells by up to 50%, strengthening the skin barrier, improving skin health markers, and reducing visible signs of aging. I've been using their OS01 face topical supplement, and I love how simple it is. You just cleanse, you pat your skin dry, and apply twice daily. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. No, I think that's a really good summary of the 90 to 10 range kind of in there. Uh, To speak to some kind of very practical in the world versions of this, people who do these things do not necessarily have 10% BPD, but they're indicators that Mm. tendencies in this direction could exist. If you are or you know somebody who tends to cycle through their relationships, whose relationships tend to end kind of poorly and who tend to end kind of poorly in relatively consistent ways, particularly if they feature elements of 
I just wasn't appreciated enough. They were never there for me. I didn't feel like they really liked me. They weren't willing to give up enough for me. That could be a little bit of a yellow flag, if not a red flag. That's great for us. Yeah. yeah. If you have, if you know somebody or are somebody who quickly bounces between emotional states, relatively normal day-to-day ups and downs present real challenges. That could be a little bit of a yellow flag. And then finally, to kind of speak to something you were indicating before, very black and white. Jobs begin as these amazing opportunities. They love everyone at the company. Their boss is incredible. And then six months later, they think that everyone sucks and is out to get them and they never liked it. And they swear to you that they never liked it. That's an indicator. That's a yellow flag, if not a red flag. So those are some examples at kind of the 10% level. Okay, so now I want to get into managing these issues, whether you're helping somebody else manage them or frankly, you're taking a look at the mirror and you're managing them for yourself. Before we do that though, I want to kind of give a blanket disclaimer and kind of a caveat here for really all of the episodes in this series, but maybe this one in particular. And it's one that we've basically already given, which is that the psychological conditions that we're discussing on this podcast are often quite serious. And many of them carry a lot of social stigmatization attached to them. Part of my goal with doing this series has been to kind of demystify these concepts for people and really borrowing to an extent from Dr. John Rady's excellent book, Shadow Syndromes, which examines kind of the 1% version Mm. of various psychological conditions. To put it in short, I wanted to say basically, hey, we're all at least a little bit something which I think makes all of these issues a lot more approachable. And that's why in general, we focused on that 10% level of these conditions. I I would never diagnose myself with an anxiety disorder, but it's helpful for me to know as a person about myself that anxiety is absolutely my drug of choice. And I think that for all of us, that can be a really useful way to approach issues like this. So to some, please be very thoughtful and careful about casually diagnosing either yourself or somebody else with a significant condition. I think sometimes in our casual way of speaking to one another, it can be really easy to be a little too free about referring to someone offhandedly as a narcissist or way too OCD or whatever else, including borderline. And formal diagnosis should always be left to a trained medical professional. And we're not formally dispensing that diagnosis in this podcast. So that's my disclaimer with... All of that said, that caution kind of tossed in there. Some level of BPD is, as we were saying before, quite common. And there might be people listening who go, hey, the 10% version of this sounds a little bit like me. If somebody has borderline at that level, that 10 to 30%, maybe all the way up to 100%, but certainly in that 10 to 30% range, what can they do, practically speaking, to work with those tendencies? I think the one word takeaway is stabilize. Mm. Because the heart of the issue is a layered architecture of instability, which becomes, frankly, at the extreme despair. And so stabilizing. And in our systematic or checklist kind of way, think body-mind relationships. So Mm. body, 
any and all forms of stabilization that are reasonable for you. The, as you know, there's a whole field now called psychoneuroimmunology, the interaction of the immune system with the nervous system and the mind, or neuroendocrinology, kind mm-hmm. of balancing the hormones that everyone has. So do what you can to stabilize the body. Look for ways to have a regular routine in your day, exercise, just the classic advice, except really take it seriously. And it's great to know that, hey, whatever you inherited as your tendencies, those aren't going to change, right? The heritable part. But boy, there's a lot you can do every day, just behaviorally. That's really, really sensible to do. So stabilize. Relationships, I think it's important to get out of situations that are inappropriately irritating or Mm. disturbing. If you feel bombarded by a lot of angry vibes around you, that's not good. You want to be with people who are are chill, who have pretty good shock absorbers inside themselves. They themselves are not provocative and invasive and untrustworthy objectively. You want to, you know, go hang out with the nice people. (laughs) Or as Mr. Rogers quoted his mother as saying to him when he was young and upset, sweetie, always look for the helpers. Mm. Wherever you go, there will be helpers. So I think looking for people who are stable in your relationship and stabilizing in your relationships is good. And then in terms of the mind, take in the good. Really, really, really focus on that piece of my work that emphasizes the conversion of states to traits where you help the experiences you're having that are beneficial to become gradually, literally hardwired into your body based on lasting changes of neural structure and function. Very, very important because if attention is unstable, if there you are, let's say with this 10 to 30% tendency and you're with someone who's being friendly and reasonable and stable, but if your attention registers that, but within seconds, skitters on to how they might let you down mm, in the future. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you've lost the opportunity to convert that passing experience that was useful to some kind of lasting change inside. Mm-hmm. Really, really. It's like recognizing that you're anemic or you have scurvy. There's a key nu- nutrient you need, vitamin C, let's say, which in the case of this territory very much tends to be social supplies and the internal experience of being settled and soothed and regulated. When you're having that vitamin C, really, really, really take it in. I think that's great. That's definitely the kind of A++ answer to this question in terms of that being the most important area to intervene is is in terms of that stabilization. Just to offer a couple of other kind of thoughts here. One thing that I think is really important with all of these issues gets back to what you were talking about about in terms of where they come from, what the origin of them is, and it being really largely out of our hands. We don't make a lot of choices as a one-year-old in terms of how we're treated or a two-year-old or a three-year-old, and we certainly don't make any choices about our genetic background. So I think that acceptance becomes really, really important and acceptance of our nature and of our vulnerabilities as individuals. And I think that it sounds very AA to say this, but kind of the first step really is in recognizing that you have a vulnerability in this Mm. territory and taking the practical steps that are then required to intervene and make your life as good as it can possibly be, given that you have this vulnerability. So, you know, I would offer that and start there. And then kind of secondarily to that, as we were talking about with attachment theory, One of the things that we've mentioned kind of softly in a number of episodes is this idea of creating a coherent narrative of your childhood 
And there might be some point in the future where we delve into that more deeply, but kind of in a sentence or two, just taking a look back on it and going, wow, what happened there? Just as honestly as you can, whether that involves speaking with caregivers who are around or if, frankly, that's not safe or comfortable, just doing some delving into your own history and own experience and going, wow, what could have happened there that might have had an influence on how I am today? And I think that doing that level of investigation can truly be really productive. Yeah, I want to build on what you're saying there for us and emphasize first that in the history, of people who in adulthood present at the high end of the range, let's say, borderline tendencies. And this may well apply also for people more in that 10 to 30% end, is very often there's a significant trauma history, Mm. particularly interpersonal trauma. And so that's very important to address in its own right. And it's very important to take into account as a causal factor in the genesis of all this, framed as things happen to you. They weren't your fault. They happen to you. They have consequences that are understandable, but it's not your fault. It's your responsibility as an adult to deal with those consequences, but they're not your fault. And that goes to the second key point I want to make, which is deepen the heart of every borderline-ish person. That's a technical term we use, ish, borderline ish (laughs) (laughs) kind of person. Deep down inside, they felt like a bad person. Mm. Deep down inside, there was certainly not any stability of feeling of worth and goodness, which often also travels with complex abuse, including in childhood, that sometimes really leads someone to feel tainted or damaged deep down inside themselves. So another key piece here is to do what you can to recover and stabilize an appropriate and healthy feeling of personal worth and value. And realizing that there's nothing wrong with you as you are. And yeah, you got to manage it a little bit, right? It's like having a bucking bronco in the middle of a small china shop, Mm. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's nothing wrong with a bucking bronco. And, you know, it's in a china shop. We kind of have to work with this here. But to really feel you're okay, you really are. There are also gifts that come with this. I'm not trying to trivialize or dismiss the costs of being at this point, let's say in the personality issue spectrum. But I think it's very important to look deep down inside and go, you know, (laughs) it sounds corny, but deep down inside, I'm pure. I'm okay, Mm -hmm. right? I am not borderline. There are borderline tendencies in this neuropsychology that I inhabit, Mm. but I am not borderline. These tendencies move through me. I need to manage them. I need to regulate them. But in the core of my being, I'm not borderline. No one is borderline in the core of their being. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting and quite empathic and beautiful sentiment for probably a lot of people out there to hear and to interact with. And even if we don't identify with BPD personally, many, perhaps even most of us have some relatively important person in our lives who have BPD at that 10% level, whether they're a family member, a romantic partner, and so on. And it's absolutely possible to have a productive relationship, in my opinion, 
with somebody who has that low level BPD. I, I would say it gets harder and harder as it becomes higher and higher level, but it's still quite possible. So if we are in relationship with somebody who has those tendencies, what are some of the things that we can do to either A, support them, or B, make our own functioning, our own relationship with them as healthy and productive as possible? Yep, classic question, and they're good resources for this. And one of them I want to mention here is in Marsha Linehan's amazing work with this territory and her development of what's called dialectical behavior therapy. It's a funny Mm. term. It's an amalgam of multiple methods that are just very well-developed. And I want to just encourage people to look in that direction. And in dialectical behavior therapy, even though it's a psychotherapy, there are elements of it that you can see immediately, oh, I could gain from that myself Mm. to deal with those tendencies in me, or I could learn from what Marsha Linehan is doing with folks like that to navigate my stepmother, let's say, or my partner here. So that's, that's one thing I'll just say. To really get into the practicality of it, to me, there are two big headlines. Mm. One is boundaries. Mm, mm-hmm. Establishing yourself healthy boundaries with someone who's borderline-y, borderline-ish, and maintaining your boundaries. Because if you slip on your boundaries, and I don't mean being rigid and weird about them, but if you're messy about them, that creates instability for the other person. You want to establish stability. And part of the stability is, I'm just not going to talk with you when you speak to me that way. Or, no, I'm uh, sorry, politely, I'm not going to be your doctor. I'm your sister. This is like a boundary. Knowing what your boundaries are and holding your boundaries in the face of, particularly for people that are high on this scale of borderline-ness, in the face of often very seductive, manipulative, intimidating sometimes, demands that you blur your boundaries, including sometimes with suicidal threats. Mm -hmm. So it can get kind of extreme boundaries, really important. In part, because if your boundaries are overwhelmed, you can't be there for that person. So to quote my supervisor back in the day when I was getting my license, he said something I've thought about many times. He said, Rick, I can't help my clients if they make me crazy. Mm. And that's really interesting. So if you are in relationship with someone and maybe You want to be because you care about them and you love them or they're a family member or you're stuck with them. One of the things to think about is that you can't be any good to them or for them. You can't be steady yourself if you let them overwhelm you. And boundaries are really important. The other headline I find that really works is a kind of matter of fact way of being with someone who's borderline in which you say, no, I'm, I'm really fine with you. And I am going to reliably deliver the goods. I'm going to reliably be willing to talk with you once a week. I'm going to reliably do my share of the housework in this family. I'm going to reliably not be volatile and nutty with you like your mother was when you were young, let's say. On the other hand, if you cross these boundaries, I'm not going to be able to deliver the goods to you. and. A kind of matter of fact, straightforwardness in which they can feel that when they push up against you, there's a there there. Mm. The there that's there is not angry, it's not hostile, it's not rejecting, but there's a there there in which 
you can then communicate a lot of reassuring and valuing that's authentic. It's got to be authentic. You have to be able to stand behind your words. But this combination, I guess, which I think of in a way as the essence of good parenting, where you're both nurturing while also realistic and grounded Mm -hmm. and willing to exercise your own authority in normal relationships appropriately. I think that's a great piece of advice to give my kind of very colloquial and slightly less clinical version of it, because this is just more through my lived experience rather than through the experience of working with patients over time or anything like that. I think there's something really powerful in being able to say some version to somebody of, I really love you, and I'm just not going to talk with you about this. Mm -hmm. I think that's really powerful. I I think it is a powerful combination of saying, I love you, I support you, I think you're great, and I think you're wrong about this. Or here's a couple more just versions of that. I really love you, and I'm not going to feel bad that you're upset right now. Yeah, sure. I really love you, and I'm not going to take responsibility Mm -hmm. for your emotional reaction right now. (laughs) Yeah, that's a profound thing to say to somebody. And of course, you want to be compassionate, you want to be thoughtful, You don't want to drop the hammer on somebody if they're not in a state where they can have that dropped on them. But man, when it comes to setting boundaries, that's one of the most powerful ways to do it, I think, because it comes from that compassionate understanding. And that's the final sort of bullet point that I would put on this idea is having compassionate understanding for somebody else, not forgiving them for their inappropriate behavior, not letting things slide that you shouldn't Mm -hmm. let slide, but separating the intention of the individual from their impact upon you. Yeah. Often what happens with people who have these chronic issues of various kinds in, in any of the territories that we've covered over the course of this podcast is that they can have a lot of negative impacts on the people around them while never meaning to. Mm-hmm. And man, that doesn't always forgive somebody's behavior. But for me personally, just on an individual level, it sure makes it a lot easier to empathize with it or to kind of think the best of them regardless of it. So I would just like to kind of offer that as a, as a final thought. Yeah, I want to add to that, that when you're with someone who is in this borderline territory, you can often get sucked into what feel like uh, endless movies of reassurance. And, and if you start to feel like you always have to prove yourself to them, you, you have to keep proving that you actually do love them or you actually do like them as a friend, that's a big clue that there could well be something going on here. So on the one hand, you want to stay out of the frame of having to sort of prove that you actually love them, et cetera. On the other hand, there's something very poignant here, which is that in the mind of someone in the borderline territory, It's like a nightmare. Mm. They feel like the bottom could fall at at any moment. You can almost never trust anyone. The more you love them, the worse it's going to be when, not if, they inevitably betray you. That's their view of the world, feeling really threatened with all these latent, especially interpersonal disasters waiting to happen. And part of a way to be with someone who's like that both for your sake and for theirs, Mm. is to say, I get you that you feel this way. I'm not going to get into a big attempt to prove it to you. I'm just trying to tell you that there's mostly good news here. People are imperfect. 
but they're generally reliable. They're generally more kind and decent than you think they are in ways you don't maybe fully realize. You are actually likable. People do want to be with you. There's mainly good news here. I'm not going to try to get into an endless process of proving it to you in the face of your yes buts. I'm just telling you factually, there's good news here to wake up from this nightmare into again and again each day. Great. I think that's a good place to bring this episode to a close. We've covered a lot of territory here. Thank you for sticking with us to the end of it. So thanks for sticking with it. And now I'm going to give a short recap of what we talked about today. Today, we explored borderline personality disorder. We began by going through the diagnostic criteria formerly for BPD, but really what we want to leave you with is the idea that people who have tendencies in this direction have characteristics that are defined by instability and extremity, where the ground is constantly kind of sand beneath their feet, and there are these really big day-to-day fluctuations sometimes even inside a day or inside an hour or inside a couple minutes between happiness and anger and sadness and reproach. And often most of this material at core comes back to some genetic vulnerabilities that exist inside the person maybe, and then some truly unpleasant experiences that probably existed inside of childhood or in the developmental years, uh, where there's this real connection between BPD and insecure forms of attachment. We then distinguished between 100% BPD and the more 10% everyday, as Rick referred to as borderline-ish characteristics that frankly many of us have. It's a very common set of ailments that people have to deal with throughout their lives. We talked about the traits of those everyday versions and the tendencies that might be shown by somebody who experiences borderline at that level. And One of the themes that we returned to throughout was a kind of sympathy for those characteristics and that underlying truth that nobody wants to be this way. And frankly, for most people, it's really not their fault. We spoke a little bit again about the foundations of BPD, the genetic versus non-genetic or heritable versus non-heritable factors that contribute to it. And then we went on to talk about how to manage these symptoms, either inside our own minds or in our relationship with others. I would say the big flag in that section was the idea of stability and grounding, finding a stable basis for our relationships with other people, and then finding stable foundations inside of the body and the mind that we can work with on a consistent basis to establish the key strengths that we need to be operative on a day-to-day basis in an increasingly changing world. So we could spend a ton more time here, but this has already been a pretty darn long episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would leave it a rating, uh, maybe a comment, and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. It really does help other people find us, and frankly, we just really appreciate it. So until next time, thanks for listening. 